welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Ron. I'm Jay. And this is our review of The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. Starring Vera Farmiga, Patrick Wilson, Rory O'Connor, Sarah Catherine Hook, Julian Hilliard, John Noble, and Eugenie Bondurant. Directed by Michael Chavis. This release in theaters and HBO Max simultaneously in June 2021. It has already grossed an impressive $57 million at the box office. So, Jay, what does the voodoo that you do so well have to do with the Conjuring series? I don't know what that means, but okay. Uh, I, You and I have had offline conversations about this run of paranormal movies that have kind of taken over parts of horror Hollywood the last 10 years or so. And it started with Insidious, which your wife turned me on to, by the way, because I didn't, didn't think that looked good, but I saw the previews and then I rented it and loved it. I was a big fan of Sinister because um, I love Ethan Hawke. I like Scott Derrickson. Um, I like C. Robert Cargill. And so I knew they were doing that. So I was a big fan of that one. And then when Conjuring came along, my wife and I went and saw it in theaters and we liked it. And it kind of got me into, oh, I think I remember Ed and Lorraine Warren, but it wasn't real positive. So I did a little Googling. It was like, oh, oh, so these are historical fiction. And I want to say that <laughs> from the beginning, like you have to accept that he's living in a world where these people are the heroes, which is not the way <laughs> it happened. There's also a world where demonic possession is a real thing. That's also not real. Sorry, kids. Uh, but I, I like the two Conjuring movies. And you and I, back in the day, did Annabelle. And I, I liked it. I mean, I know a lot of people kind of banged on that one, but I thought it was pretty good. I liked Annabelle creation. I thought that was good. Then they started spinning off. I didn't see the nun. I saw the curse of La Yorna and much like Annabelle comes home, it sort of erased itself as I watched it. So I'm not a big fan of the entire conjuring cinematic universe, if you would say, but I do like the first two conjuring movies. I enjoyed them quite a bit, mostly because of Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson are awesome in them. And if you put anybody else in these movies, it would suck. Yeah. Uh, Lindsay and I actually did a special appearance on the Tis the Podcast Patreon, where we talked about the Conjuring movies and the Conjuring verse in the lead up to the Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, where the consensus that all three of us came to was that without Ed and Lorraine Warren, and specifically without Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson, these movies do not fly. And this is coming from someone who likes Annabelle, who liked, who loved Annabelle creation. I thought that was better than Annabelle one, the original Annabelle. Uh, I kind of liked Annabelle comes home just because it was a novel take on the thing. And we finally got to see what happens when the, the Warren's playroom uh, gets out of control. Um, <laughs> Isn't that 50 shades book or something? That happens? <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a long bit. Uh, there's a great bit on we hate movies where they talk about, uh, the contractors that Jigsaw had to hire to build these death rooms, but uh, that because of contractual reasons, Jigsaw had to call them sex dungeons. <laughs> yeah, I can believe that. And uh, yeah, so I, I'm a big fan. I've seen all of them, but uh, La Llorona, uh, because I don't know why I missed that one. I even saw The Nun in theaters because I hate myself. Wow. Uh, I mean, that that's going deep in, man, at that point. It, it was not good, but it was fun. 
Yeah, yeah. I think that's the thing about these movies is you're not going in there to watch The Third Man or, you know, Citizen Kane or, or you're not even going in to watch The Shining, Stanley Kubrick's version, not Stephen King's teleplay. But but you can go in to be entertained. These can be fun, mostly, again, because they cast two people who, for whatever reason, decided to take this seriously and give you something that it doesn't deserve. Like, I want to be very clear to anybody who might think otherwise. There in no world should Ed and Lorraine Bourne be celebrated at all as anything more than carny hucksters. All right. They're, they're just like the people that run AEW, WWE, NWA, all of it. Okay. They're the same cut, but there can be some fun in these stories. And I've loved Vera Farmiga since, you know, Bates Motel and Up in the Air and a lot of the other stuff she's done. Patrick Wilson, I didn't know him, man, until I saw the Watchmen movie. And I thought, man, this guy's actually pretty good. And then I saw him in like Little Children and all these other things. And he's just a good dramatic actor. And so when that first Conjuring movie happened, I was like, well, I mean, they had a lot of other characters, actors in there I knew, but they carried it. I thought, man, these people are good and they're really good in these roles. So the fact that they want to keep on doing it, I'm game. You know, I I was curious when the the trailer to this finally hit. I'm sitting on the couch. My wife is sitting in her seat. That thing comes on TV and she's like, oh, we're, we're watching that. Like she was down. I said, OK, well, that, you know, that's enough sell for me. I'll I'll go back for a third conjuring dish. And I knew nothing about the based on story that this one was about i kind of knew the other two but i didn't know this one at all yeah i I was completely unfamiliar with this one but uh i've been a patrick wilson fan going back to uh hard candy the movie he made with elliot page where he is an incredible creep Mm -hmm. i also saw little children and that was what turned me on to jackie earl haley who's an incredible creep well in advance of the Watchmen (laughs) movie and then both of them were together i was like well i can't not give this five stars and it was one of my most effusively praised uh, praising uh, reviews I did on Den of Geek was, I loved it. I know I'm in the minority on that. I know that, um, you know, the amount of people who love that movie is small, but I'm one of them, and I've been on board with Patrick Wilson ever since then. And uh, like you, Vera Farmiga, Bates Motel was just revelatory. She's amazing on Bates Motel, and it's really worth the journey to watch that show because. That's another thing that shouldn't work, but between her and Freddie Highmore, Highmore and Nestor Carbonell, it actually really works. Yeah, yeah. Olivia Cook's great in that too, by the way. Oh, so Olivia Cook is yeah. incredible in that. She yeah. is a scene stealer. Yeah. Well, I mean that that show is way better than it deserves to be because again, you got competent actors and competent showrunners and writers, and you handed it to people that took it seriously. And I think mm-hmm. to do something like this. Like you can do one of two things. You can either be really campy and kind of lean into that. And that's part of the fun, which is part of the fun of the sinister movies, even that second one, which isn't as good, but they kind of lean into the silliness of the whole idea. I mean, for goodness sakes, Vincent D'Onofrio is like literally zoom phoning his performance in for that, that there's, there's a fun in that, or you do this where you just play it as straight as possible, no matter how ludicrous the idea is. And I think that's what gives these movies uh, a real life. And I mean, goodness gracious, they've all been hugely successful. You're talking hundreds of millions of dollars for every one of them in the franchise. And I think the lowest one made like 123 
on a nine million dollar budget. That was Leona. And you know, this one would they spent 39 million on it. It's already gross 57. That doesn't count all the receipts off of what HBO paid for it to get mm-hmm. it, you know, to pay paid waters to get it for you know the, the dual release. So it's already a hit. And we know it is. And and they didn't even have to do much with the trailers. Like there's not a lot there. It's very simple before they they sell you what this is. Cause I think by the time the third contract movie happens, you kind of know what you're in for. Yeah, I think you kind of know what you're in for, and I think you know what you're expecting. And I think that there is a, a serious audience for that. And even though this movie was delayed by COVID and there have been lots of issues around it coming out, it still has been wildly successful. And I don't know about you, I watched it on HBO Max, and I wish I had been able to see it in a theater that I was comfortable going to a theater. You know, I've been vaccinated, you've been vaccinated. But at the same time, it's like, I'm not really wanting to stick my whole foot in in the murky waters of that, you know, I've had bad, I've had bad theater experiences on a good day. Yeah. You know, that was when everything was normal. I'll tell you what sold the difference for me. Cause I'm still sitting on movie tickets.com gift certificates. I got two Christmases ago to try to go see stuff. I finally see, I saw spiral that way, uh, but I've still got a good bit of gift certificate money there. And I told my wife, I said, okay, you want to go see this? You want to go see it in a theater or you want to just get the HBO thing and watch it at home? And she said, oh, by far, why do you think we bought this 70-inch television? And I was like, okay, you're right. You know, in, in our small apartment, you know, we're not that far from it. So it's like being on the big screen for me. And while, yes, there was some stuff that I thought, oh, that would have looked really cool on a big screen. I'm like, you know what? It looks pretty darn good on my television. <laughs> like, I, I don't know that there was anything theatrically about this that made it better. And the fact that I was close enough that I could still hear it and control the volume myself made it worth it to see at home. I'm I'm a fan of this model. I know it. And I say that as someone who likes to go to movie theaters, but I'm a fan of this dual release model. I really am. I, I hope it's not something that goes away going forward after this year. I'll be honest. I'm not going to pay $30 to watch this in my home, but if it was like $20, I would probably consider it just because I wouldn't have to get a babysitter yeah. and have to drive to the theater make my own popcorn i could you know i could drink a whole two liter by myself and pause it go to the bathroom and come back and not have to worry about a thing you know um yeah so. i mean we we cooked like a whole dinner sat down real comfortable had on my house shoes i mean for 14.99 that was totally worth it hbo so thank you very much i, I was down for that yeah I, i'm a big fan of the dual release model myself and like you i'm a huge mark for movie theaters and i always have been i mean Especially when uh, I first started with Den of Geek, I was going to the movies like every week just because either they wanted me to see something or something I wanted to see came out or, you know, I had nothing better to do. Uh, It's a little more difficult now that, you know, I've got family, but, you know, I have tried to support a watch from home model as much as I've been able to, um, owing to all the economic hardships that have been going on for everyone who is self-employed or a one person, small business like my wife, but yeah, I want this to stick around um, because I don't think this will kill movie theaters. I think movie theaters are an entirely separate experience. And I think that for something like this, yeah, you can watch it at home and have a good time, or you can go out to the movie theater and laugh at screaming teenagers who, you know, crap the theater chair every time, you know, (laughs) something happens. 
Exactly. Yeah, I do think it's there's a different experience for them. There are some things that I definitely want to see in a theater that are coming out later this year. I'll I'll go ahead and cop to that. There's other stuff that I'm like, if there's an option at home, like for it's already on one of the services I'm paying for, I'm going to do it. I'm with you. I don't know that I want to pay thirty dollars just to sit at home and watch it. I can wait, you know, forty five days and just wait for it to hit one of the services. But if it's doing dual release, I'm staying home. Um, if it, if it's exclusive, I'll go and see it because you know, like I think James Bond will be an exclusive thing. Uh, I know the forever purge is going to be exclusive theater to start with. And that's something my wife and I are big fans of that series. We'll go wrap that one up uh, too, but you know, uh, to get out to the theater, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have the family constraints and things that you do, but uh, you know, at the end of a 60 hour work week, which is about what I pull even in the summer, the last thing I want to do on Friday night is go be around people. Uh, so, and then Saturday I'm like, no, I think I'll enjoy the sun. So, you know, it, it going to a theater is a different thing, but Ron, obviously a lot of people did go and see this, not only at stateside, but uh, internationally, cause it's making its money. Why don't you tell folks uh, what the plot of, conjuring the devil made me do it is i would love to jay there's no such thing as a routine exorcism unless you're paranormal legends slash hucksters and lorraine warren after all they've done dozens of them or have said they've done dozens of them and they've been casting out demons and battling the supernatural since the 60s and it's now 1981 during the exorcism of eight-year-old david glatzel something horribly goes wrong the priest, Father Gordon, is injured by flying plates, and David's sister's boyfriend, Ernie, makes the ultimate sacrifice. Hold on. But- David's sister's boyfriend. I just want to make sure I had that down right, because I thought he was his brother for half of this movie. Nope, that is David's sister's boyfriend, and I think the first problem was they called a priest instead of a rabbi. That is some, yeah, that's another, yeah, we'll get into that, but go ahead. The, the last name Glatzel is does not sound especially Catholic to me, but, you know, what do I know? Uh, Anyway, David's sister's boyfriend, Arnie, makes the ultimate sacrifice. He begs the demon to take him instead. While Ed watches helplessly in the throes of a heart attack. Flash forward to a few days or weeks later, it's not really clear, and Ed emerges from his coma with a bad ticker and an ominous warning for Lorraine. The demon is in Arnie. She calls the cops and gets them to head to Arnie's house, but by the time the authorities arrive, it's already too late. Arnie has stabbed his landlord 22 times, and he has a novel defense for his murder. The devil made me do it. It's up to the Warrens to investigate the haunting and save an innocent murderer from prison. During the course of their investigations, they find a mysterious totem that indicates that this isn't an ordinary haunting. This is a curse. Not the curse of La Llorona, but a a different kind of curse. They seek out former priest Father Kastner, who knows all about curses, because he's Austrian or something, and he's battled the disciples of the Ram cult. <laughs> this totem was planted for a purpose, to claim a soul for the devil. Turns out, this is nothing new. In nearby Danvis, Mass., a young woman named Katie Lincoln, not Featherstone, was stabbed 22 times, and her best friend disappeared. The police use Lorraine's gifts to track down the body, and Lorraine uses that body to track down the cultist. But the connection she forges works both ways putting the Warrens in more danger than Bill Wilkins ever could have. The Warrens discovered that Katie had been a student at Fairfield University, so it's likely the cultist is operating there based off of some clues Lorraine discovers from her psychic connection. And since that connection works both ways, as we've already established, the occultist is able to plant a totem at Ed's desk, meaning Lorraine's got to save the day. She goes to Kastner for help, and he reveals that he raised a secret daughter, Isla, who turned away from Catholicism and towards demonology. She's using the tunnels under their house as her demon lair. 
fitting because demons, hell, underground. They all go into the tunnels, and Kastner is killed by his daughter. Lorraine runs, being chased, and Ed arrives on the scene to smash his way into a tunnel with a sledgehammer. Bad heart or no bad heart. But, uh-oh, the demon possesses him, and he goes to kill Lorraine. Thankfully, the devil isn't stronger than the power of love, so Lorraine is able to flashback Ed back to reality, and he smashes the altar rather than his wife's brain pan. The occultist arrives at the broken altar, only to be killed by the demon she had summoned, after failing to find a suitable victim. Ed, Lorraine, and Arnie are all safe. Castor's dead, but who cares? The witch totem takes a place of honor in the Warren Supernatural Museum alongside Valak painting and Annabelle. Arnie ends up only doing five years in prison, and Ed builds Lorraine a gazebo like the one they fell in love at, as credits roll. Oh, there's a lot to unpack there, Rod. <laughs> um... You know, by the time the third movie comes around in a horror franchise, and this isn't the third one of the Conjuring full franchise, but we'll say it's of the main ilk. By then, most horror franchises have kind of figured out the formula. You know, Nightmare on Elm Street, we got Freddy doing puns and murdering teenagers. We got Jason with a hockey mask killing all the people you hated in high school. You know, like we, we kind of know what we're doing. Halloween fucked it up with you know, Season of the Witch, but that was at least fun. You know, it's weird. This one, it's it feels so different than the other two. And I think part of it is because the other two hauntings or whatever in the first Conjuring movies involved like full families. And this time it's a couple of young people. And I don't know, there's just something about that that it, it's just a different feel. And I know they were the real Warrens and all were involved and, and all of that. And just putting that aside and talking about the fiction verse that we're, we're in with this movie it just feels different this time around, you know, it, it's very much this uh, to borrow Nicholas Cage and ghost rider love story between Arnie and his girlfriend here. Um, and, and Lorraine, like they're sort of juxtaposed against each other. In fact, I wasn't for sure for a minute that in the flashbacks of Ed and Lorraine meeting when he's working at a movie theater, speaking of movie theaters, that it wasn't the, the characters playing Arnie and uh, Debbie that weren't like playing them as younger people. They look a lot like them. They do look a lot like them. And I can, and I can honestly see why they would think to tie the young couple in love back to the Ed and Lorraine Warren origin story. We've gotten little glimpses of their origin story, you know, with the country too. It's like, what did you do when someone believed you? Well, I married him. I married her. You know, that's cute and all. But one of the reasons why I think this doesn't feel like the other two conjuring movies is simply the lack of James Wan's direct hands-on involvement. And I think that really hurts the movie. Um, you know, uh, Michael Chavis did uh, The Curse of La Llorona, which the least well-regarded of the Conjuring verse movies. And a lot of the people involved were sort of the guys who were involved in the extended Conjuring universe, not necessarily the mainline Conjuring, the mainline Conjuring films. And I think that's one of the things that kind of has hurt this movie. And another thing that has kind of hurt this movie is it, it's, it makes me think of uh, X-Files Fight the Future, if you remember that one? Yes, yeah, the one with Billy Connolly. Yes, no, no, because no. this priest shows up and I'm like, yeah. well, uh, all we need is Billy Connolly to show up and be like, must of the child. Yeah, exactly. I want to tell you the, the parallel I draw to it here is I'm a fan of the Fast and Furious franchise 
by and large, like I don't just hate those movies outright, even though they are ridiculous and, and get more ridiculous as every passing chapter. But they had kind of a sweet spot in the middle there where they had like three really good movies in a row, like four, five, and six are infinitely rewatchable. But there's something about Too Fast, Too Furious, directed by John Singleton, that I know it's not any good, but I still like it. But it's definitely missing like the people that made the first one good and the people that made the fourth and the fifth and the sixth one really good, namely Vin Diesel. And you know, I know Rob Cohen's still involved, but like some of the writing was different. It's just a different sensibility. And it's competently directed. Michael Chavis can direct, but there's just nothing interesting about it like james wan has a way of using the camera to set you up for a good scare whereas in this movie like i knew when every jump was about to happen like you could time it i'm like he's not gonna get it's not gonna happen when he's looking through the hole in the wall it's gonna happen when he turns around and sure enough that's exactly what happened and i don't know there was something about watching this movie that I felt like even not knowing the source story at all. I'm like, I can predict, I think everything that's about to happen. And I was pretty well, right. Most of the time, like it's very, very perfunctory, this movie. And, and another problem, at least I have with the movie is you get a lot of Ed and you get a lot of Lorraine and they're separated for a big chunk of the movie. And what you want is those two together. What you want is those two Together, those two interacting with Arnie and his girlfriend, you want those two interacting with the family because that's the strength of the movie. Uh, that's the strength of all the, the mainline Conjuring flicks has been that great chemistry between Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson, that kind of lived-in loving relationship that they're able to, to put together just based off of how they look at each other and interact with each other and their body language towards each other. They're what make the movie work and them being separated is what hurts this movie more so even than than to me James one not directing it yeah and the thing is like part of it is we want to give Lorraine a lot of agency as a character to, to do things without having to have Ed there the whole time and there's also everyone knows Ed, Ed Warren died because of a bad heart so they want to tease us with the idea of like is this the one where Ed's gonna die you know and I personally like really started to hate that when i realized they weren't going to do it i was like now they're just kind of toying with us with that and that's a crutch and and you remove your one of your biggest pieces out of the movie because patrick wilson when he's in the movie is really good but he's not in it enough and that's nothing against vera farmiga i like her but what works about these is like you said the two of them together not them running solo like the the best parts of the scooby movies are when they're actually working together not when you separate them all and that's the same with this like it just i don't know it, there was something different about it that i didn't love and i think you've nailed something about james wan and sort of his understanding of how to do suspense and and really get you scared right and the one thing they they got in this one that i'll give it credit for which is different is it, rather than being another haunting movie it, because they, I mean, they have danced around Amityville so long. I don't know when we're ever going to get that one. If we ever will, I mean, goodness gracious, it's not like there's not enough Amityville horror movies. They could have finally done one with the Conjuring universe, but whatever. And I think they've gone by it now, so they won't do it. But, but this one is a a witch casting spells and curses, which is a different thing because now we're playing into the 1980s and the Satanic Panic, and that is that's a prickly subject to try to put over as the, the impetus for a movie happening. Yeah, you're right. And especially if you grew up in the South, 
it had any interest in Dungeons and Dragons like I did. Or, or watched horror movies at all. Or, or watched horror yeah. movies or listened to metal or any of that stuff. You you were inundated with the satanic panic stuff. I mean, if you grew up where I did, you wore owned a black t-shirt they prayed for you. <laughs> well, up here, if you owned a black t-shirt, it's probably just because you sweat a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that was the reason I had them. <laughs> yeah. As, uh, but the thing is, we all know Ed Warren lives until like 2006. Ed Warren lives past 9-11. Yeah. He's not going to – I know you can hint that and you can use that as a physical issue, as a crutch, kind of like they do in, for example, The Exorcist. You've got the – Father Marin's got Father the Father Marin with the bad heart. Yeah. And you can use that to add dramatic tension, but I feel like making – I understand why they made this the time where he had his heart attack, because that's something you can that's something you can hang a movie on. That's your hook. That's when you can have Lorraine start to take more of this active role in the investigation and stuff. And I feel like when they do a Conjuring 4, because they're inevitably going to be doing a Conjuring 4, that's going to make for a better Conjuring movie because you'll have Lorraine to sort of do the more physical stuff, the prowling around and stuff. And you'll have Ed there for the emotional support, the psychological support, dealing with the families, with his demonology knowledge. And you'll have the time bomb of his bad heart always in the back of your mind. But for whatever reason in this movie, it, it doesn't it doesn't quite work as well. And also, I this is like the fourth or fifth Judy they've had. And I want Judy to be involved in the Warrens. And I think that they have, I, I think one of the big things they have failed to do is to build the new England society for uh, psychic research. That is part of the Warren backstory. They have not brought that into the movies proper. And I think if you gave Ed and Lorraine Warren a team, I think you've got, you've got something that could carry on past Ed's part. Well, think about it. That's what made those Insidious movies work, even after Lynn Shay died. <laughs> like her team, Lee Winnell and the other guy, were fun, and they were funny, and you liked them. Like they, there was something about them that made that endearing, and you kind of follow them through this. And and I'm with you too. Like I, I was glad to see Judy as a grown up, or at least you know twenty something here or whatever. And then they had like the Pacific Islander cameraman guy. I don't know who he is. They had a name, and they kept throwing it out. But like, who is is he? Does he date her? Like, who is this guy? Is he like you find him? Do you train him? I don't know who he is. I needed more of them to be actively involved in this. And maybe that is Conjuring Four that you get more of them. I don't know how you know realistic the the real Judy Warren was involved in her parents' stuff. But at this point, I mean, who cares about historical? Again, we're talking about historical fiction here. And why can't you have a little more fun with it? Have them be more involved, especially since you've got young people. And I will say this. I don't know Roy O'Connor from anything. I know who Sarah Catherine Hook is because she was like this vocal talent student in Montgomery, Alabama when I lived there. And was a big deal when she went to, you know, NYU and, you know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, she's like a really talented up-and-coming actress. So I recognized her face immediately. And upon, you know, looking at her IMDb, I said, oh, yes, I remember her. I mean, goodness gracious, you know, you couldn't escape her around Montgomery for a while. You got really fresh young faces who are doing some fun stuff here it would have been neat to have the younger ones to at least be along for the ride well drew has been around since the conjuring 2 
that's the guy you're thinking about. He is a South African actor. Okay. Uh, Shannon Cook. Uh, but I feel like at this point they should have like a sound guy. They should have the camera guy. Yeah. They should have like a tech nerd to uh, cobble, to put all those patches together. They should, they should hundred percent have a team at this point. And we should have it. Drew should be more of a character. Yeah. They should have a van with like a logo. Like, come on. Like they, I, they, they would have had that at this point. They had that. Yeah. Well, at this point they had a press agent. Uh, <laughs> yeah that's also true i don't think they're gonna write that into the story but, but no the I, next yeah. but they they have uh, they have future adventures that take place after this uh uh because they've got the snedeker house the haunting in connecticut house is based off uh the haunting in connecticut is based off of the warrens story but it doesn't have necessarily the warrens involved i think that if you're going to continue this on, especially if Ed's going to have a bad heart. Uh, you you need to get these other people. Drew needs to be a character. Judy needs to be a character. Maybe pick one actress and stick with her for a while. Uh, it's time to sort of broaden the team. And I think they've really missed out on something because they could definitely do a, from the files of the New England Paranormal Society or whatever the name of their organization was, the New England well, Society for Psychic Research. Yeah. That could be a whole thing that could that could fold in your conjuring verse. Yeah, well, it totally could. I mean, that's kind of what they did with the nun and uh, Liorna too. Those were kind of side shoot things that didn't really have anything to do with this until they just shoved in like Father Perez and a couple of other side characters too. At least Annabelle had some direct you know to it. I'll, I'll say this now and I'll say my piece about it and, and get off the the horse about it. But they they did miss a chance with that second one not to do Amityville. They really should have done that. And done it from that point of view. It would it would have been more interesting. Now the only way to do it is to recast and do a prequel, which that's automatically going to suck because Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga are so good in this. There's no way you could beat them. So I, I don't know how they well, would do it. I, I don't think you'd have to do a prequel. They ba- both basically look the same as they did in the first Conjuring, and that was prior to Amityville. Amityville was a few years before this. Yeah. So I think you could definitely, if you really wanted to get them to do Amityville. They can't. My my issue is I'm not sure who owns the rights to the Amityville story. It's also true. I mean, who knows now? There's so many, again, there's so many sequels to that. And there are some that are made that have the name, but they aren't official. Like I watched one on uh, Shudder or something that was like the Amityville legacy or some nonsense. And it was. Terrible. Oh, yeah. Uh, Amityville. <laughs> it's about time where there's like time travel involved. Yeah, there's and... that one, which I think uh, the Scream movies made fun of in Scream 4, <laughs> but, uh, if memory serves. But yeah, I, it, that's the kind of thing we need. We've gotten sidetracked on that, but it's worth mentioning because, again, this story is pretty darn simple. Like that's the one thing, too, is the, the other two Conjuring movies were almost convoluted they were almost like a lot of layers you had to get through to figure it out and this one like if you don't know father castner is a bad dude the minute you meet him you ain't been watching tv i mean (laughs) he just looks like some evil thug from a bad chuck norris movie or you know he's always been the the priest that knew too much or something. He just looked, he, he just has a presence that you're like, Oh yeah, this guy's lying. <laughs> he, he knows something he's not telling them. It's clear. Well, he was uh, one of the bad guys on uh, sleepy hollow. If you remember sleepy hollow, he was yeah. a good, he was uh, kind of a good guy on fringe 
are you really that good when you're involved in like mad science? Because he was yeah. a, basically he's either going to be a priest or a mad scientist with that accent, his general look. He and, definitely and, looks like the original Dr. Frankenstein. Like he's got that going on. And I like the guy. I, I really like John Noble as a performer, but he's he's typecast based off of his accent and his look. Yeah, it's like Rutger Hauer walks on and you know something's about to go down. It's like, well, okay, yeah. Obviously, we, we know that this now is the antagonist of the story for the most part because uh, that's just what he does. Yeah, in our uh, forthcoming Army of the Dead uh, review, uh, Rob Antiquera from the Action Drunkies has a whole school of actor who you know they're going to show up and be the bad guy. Uh, among them is Garrett Dillahunt, who's in that movie. <laughs> And among yeah. them is John Noble is going to be some sort of uh, scary, troublesome figure in your story because that's just what that dude looks like. I will give him credit for, for he's only in the two scenes and he really does a good job of laying on the story because we get his backstory from the other priest that he, he got so involved with and embedded with this cult and these people that followed this, this Satan worshiping that it drove him mad and drove him away from the priesthood. And, and we find out that's kind of true. It's also that he had a secret family on the side. And so he felt like, well, I need to raise the kid now. Uh, and, you know, can't do that as a Catholic priest. So, uh, okay. So you, so, you know, he's got like a, a sinister side at least, or at least deceptive. And the way he talks and plays it, I'll be honest with you, I got a little bit of Everett McGill and Silver Bullet off of him. Like he just had like a couple of looks like that. That's a really good pull. And I've been trying to figure out who that guy made who that guy was making me think of. And I wasn't pulling Everett McGill, but that's a good choice. Yeah, he, f- he felt a lot like that. And the way he lays out the story and the two halves that he gets is that, you know, these people just followed this. He he tells like a very sympathetic side of the Satan worshipers, right? And it's almost like the, the more realistic side of like people that just, you know, didn't go within the mainstream and they got so wrapped up in something that they, they got a hold of something they didn't know what to do with. So I felt like I could just wrap all this and, you know, hold, hold all these books in here together. And, you know, Ed gets the good line about these aren't organized in any alphabetical way, are they, by any chance? Because, of course, their library is. But it's pretty much here's all the answers you need are in this room and it's all right here. And what he's saying to them is I can't tell you what you need to know right now because it would betray my own family allegiances. But if you'll just look deep enough or think for half of a second, you'll realize that I'm lying to you and somehow I'm connected to all of this. Well, and and the thing is the way they set it up is actually pretty clever because Ed and Lorraine Warren have to be the spokes couple for getting in over your head on some shit you don't understand yes. that you are not prepared for. Cause that is their MO for their whole life. Oh, completely. I mean, like all they do is go the wrong direction and then have to swim out of it in some way or another. They get in the deep end so quick and, and, and it's exacerbated in this movie by the fact that Ed is just not around. And it's not that Lorraine had to have a man there to save her. It wasn't that so much as they were a team and a partnership. And while, Lorraine had a bit of clairvoyance to her and and was a medium in some ways. Ed was the scholar, you know, so he could do the homework, the research and all that stuff. And that's, that's how the characters are built in this fictional universe. 
and that's what's missing here. And I will say that there is there's some good humor when they go and they meet that cop and they're investigating Katie, not Featherston's death. Uh, which, but you said that I was like, oh, I miss Katie Featherston. I don't miss the Paranormal Activity series, but I do miss Katie Featherston. Uh, but but I loved how he lays out knives like one of these was the murder weapon. Which one is it? And like he's running on some jabber, and then all of a sudden she's like, it's that one. It slides across the table. And I love his whole, like, it's a good bit of comic relief in the middle of the movie where the cop is like, you had a one in three chance. And have you ever met Elvis? Yes. Before he was dead, before he was dead and after. And like, that was funny. Like I, I was like, okay, this movie's taking a minute to have a breath. Like I'll give him credit for breathing some of that in. And I feel like that's James Wan's influence. Cause I know he had some, some hand in the story that at some point he realized you gotta like let people off the tension note, because we've had the gruesome murder at this point. We've had all the, the freaky possession stuff. We got to let people laugh a little bit. And those were, to me, the best moments uh, of the movie, or at least some of the most fun moments, because you got Ed and Lorraine just being people. Yeah, and you don't get a lot of Ed and Lorraine being people in this movie otherwise. And that's one of the things that works, to me, best about the first two movies. Uh, the second one was written by David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick, who wrote this third one. Uh, he was one of the writers on the second one, and he's one of the writers on The Walking Dead. And he's pretty good at... Uh, at uh, throughout his work, it's sprinkling in those little laugh lines, those little uh, you know. There's a lot of heavy stuff going on, but but here's a here's a chance to to have a little smile. And it, it one of the things I appreciate about that is clearly they're establishing that Lorraine is actually clairvoyant, which is fair enough. Also, I kind of feel like she's messing with this cop a little bit, and that's a nice that's a nice touch. You don't get her having a ton of of sense of humor in the movie. And it kind of jives with some of, it kind of jives a lot with uh, in Conjuring Two, Ed doing the Elvis impression. That was really yes. funny. Yeah, and it's just a really kind of sweet, fun moment. I think for the two of them, that you don't necessarily get much of in these movies. You don't now. now you laid it out in the plot summary, but I need you to explain it to me again about who Katie was and why she got wrapped up in the curse to murder her friend out in the woods. Cause I got a little lost in that part of the movie. I'll be honest with you. I was going, I, I realized this witch person has something to do with this, but I don't exactly know how this ties to David and Arnie and Debbie. The witch totem that they found in uh, the house yeah, well, the that's the waterbed attack, which is in the trailer, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, the witch, the, the witch totem they find at the Glatzel house uh, is similar to a thing that was found at Katie's or at the uh, Jessica, the friend of Katie, at her place at the crime scene. Okay, okay. So that's the that totem thing is what kind of gets those two things together uh, with a little help from uh, Father Kastner kind of pushes them in that direction well i mean that's and that's one of the most like unnerving parts of the movie is where lorraine goes into that further or whatever we want to call it here and starts like reenacting the murder of of jessica like that was genuinely freaky i thought okay the the jump scares in this movie are cheap that was scary and i'll give a lot of that to Vera formiga for selling us on that and she that's also the best part of the conjuring too but the scariest part of the Conjuring too is where she's walking through the Amityville house, reenacting the DeFeo murders. Right, right. Uh, and that that part really works for me. And the part where Ed gets possessed uh, later on in the movie, both of those really work for me because of the physical performance of the actors, how, how completely different it is from their normal uh, interactions with each other and the normal interactions with the world. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it, it completely works because we get both of them in states where they are no longer in control of themselves for different reasons. And it takes the other one to pull them out of it. And and I mean, that's kind of the yin and yang of Ed and Lorraine, these characters, as, as we built up over these now three movies, is that they do pull each other out of the fire very often. And I mean, and it's in the trailer and they blow it with the bit where uh, Lorraine's running toward the cliff and then she starts to fall off because the demon grabs her a little bit. Right. And I, I thought that was good. I mean, it, it's it's a jump scare. It's cheap, but it's it's neat. It's also kind of ridiculous, though, to think about this man just had a heart attack and he's doing like a Sylvester Stallone cliffhanger, pull her up over the thing, which Vera Formiga does it way more than 100 pounds. But I mean, goodness gracious, that's not easily done by anybody, especially a heart patient. Oh, my thing is the heart patient outruns the cop. Right. Who is <laughs> who is especially by the standards of 1981, a very physically fit cop. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that you realize like they are padding Patrick Wilson up with like fat suit stuff because he is still incredible. When his arm comes down, that man is incredibly built. He works out five days a week. Like that that guy is in great shape. He could still play Night Owl and Watchmen or whatever. Yeah, definitely. And that's um that's one of the th- one of the big problems they've had with the casting of Ed Warren is that Patrick Wilson is in way better shape than Ed Warren ever was. I mean just looking at pictures of the man and I, I'm fat too. So, you know, I get it. I, I ain't in no great shape, but man, Ed Warren looks like he eats cigarettes for dinner. Right. Like, cigarettes and Big Macs. Yeah. With like, Diet fried, Coke. Like, he, <laughs> like, no, not Diet Coke. He's a, that's a fried cigarettes and, and brain. butter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I hear you, but, but it, it is a neat moment when, when, she goes off the cliff literally and he rescues her. And then later on when they're down below in the, in the tunnels and he's possessed and the, the makeup job they do in the eyes, you know, the whole, I don't know if that's CGI or if, if they do contacts like you know, Michael Jackson's thriller or whatever, it's really works. And part of it is the face. Again, both of them can give this face that can be horrific. And fear Formiga was, was awesome on, on base motel doing that kind of stuff. And then, you know, just to see her do it again, is cool. What did you make out of Eugenie Bond? the the lady that is playing the witch here because i like i'll be honest and i'm not trying to be mean here like i was like is that a man is that a woman i don't know like it's very androgynous and kind of spooky it's it's very marilyn manson is that performance and that kind of ties back into the satanic panic stuff because it was all gonna corrupt your children and and scramble traditional gender roles and right and all that stuff i mean i assumed it was a woman, but just a woman dressed in very severe clothing, very puritanical, almost puritanical or stereotypically witchy kind of yeah. clothing to me. Yeah. Like if she had showed up in the bitch, <laughs> yes, I wouldn't have been terribly surprised. <laughs> or if she showed up in Lords of Salem and dropped a lot of F bombs, either the, one. Yeah. The, the bitch Lords of Salem, uh, she could have showed up on the, uh, Island in, um, not the bees. Oh, uh, Wicker Man. The Wicker Man. Yes, thank you. Yeah. The original or the remake or both. Yeah, she could have been kung fu kicked by Nicolas Cage, and it would have worked. Like I, I'll get. I don't know that that performer from anything. I, I probably would never see her in anything else. But that was a, a startling performance to be that subtle and quiet and just alarming at all times it, it, i kept waiting for her to like freak out and start screaming and yelling and to the script's credit 
they never let her do that. It's like she is always in control when she's lighting up her black magic candles and doing her incantations and what. I, I like that. I mean, because that the stereotypical thing is that that person always like goes off the rails, and she never really does in this. And so I I liked that performance. It was quite unnerving. And she's one of those performers who's been around forever and been in all kinds of stuff, but never really like broken out. Like she was on Star Trek, the next generation. She was on Frasier. Uh, she was on Arliss. She was in, in fight club. She's one of the, the people in the support groups at fight club. Uh, you know, she's been on Elvis miniseries from 2005. She was in the hunger games, mocking Jay. Uh, she's been in all kinds of stuff and never quite broken out. She's a really interesting looking person. And she's a really, uh, she's like a, she's like a radio theater actress. Yeah. And, and like a, a stage performer. And she's really, she's like six feet tall, which is crazy. Yeah. Cause in Hollywood, that's giant. Let's just be honest. Like she, she is like Patrick Wilson is a giant in Hollywood. He's a huge guy and she, she is very tall and thin and just, she's just a rail is what it is. Mm -hmm. And when she does that bit where she kills her father, she's on one side of the room and he pulls out a gun and he starts telling her like, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to shoot you or whatever, you know, in his feeble George Bush voice or whatever he's got going on there. And she just comes right behind him and slits his throat. And then it's like, and she lays his head down. Like that was messed up. I was like, okay, that that's good. Yeah. She's great. Uh, she fits right into this universe uh, as a, as a different sort of character. She's got a, an incredible look as you've talked about. And like, I could definitely see her as being in league with the devil just yeah. based off of <laughs> totally. her, her general look and her general, uh, her general vibe. I guess the third act of this movie is where it sort of rescues itself for me. Cause at this point I've just kind of been going with it and I'm like, okay, whatever. But it's when we've got Arnie who's, he surrounded himself with Holy water in his, in his cell and his suicide prevention cell. And the Holy water of course comes in a glass container. He breaks it and he starts to cut himself up and all that you know stuff. And he, so he's strapped down to the bed and he's clearly being controlled and contorted by this demon while Ed and Lorraine are fighting the demon woman beneath the shadows. And I, I got to say like him and Sarah Catherine hook there in those scenes are really good together. Like she gives a really good performance. I liked the two of them. I almost wanted more of Arnie and Debbie because I felt like we, we shifted away from them so long to just do Ed and Lorraine playing Scooby that we, we kind of forgot who they were. I feel like uh, this could have easily been a Conjuring verse movie, and you bring Ed and Lorraine Warren in at the end. Yeah, because I, I like you. I liked those two characters, and I could have definitely seen more of those two characters. Um, and I, I feel like there was something there that they could have could have tapped into a little bit more, uh, and made it more of a almost like a, a legal thriller type of movie. Kind of like um, the exorcism of Emily Rose. Have you ever seen that? Mm. So that's a Scott Derrickson flick, by the way. And yeah, Laura Linney is great in that. And yeah, there's there's some there's some good performances going on there. But I like I liked our young couple is what I what I'm getting at. And I don't know Rory O'Connor from anything. I've seen a lot of his like credits and stuff. But I I like him. I'm like okay, that dude's going to be a star. Sarah Catherine Hook's going to be a star. Like they're they definitely have some star wattage to them. I really like the performers who played young Ed and Lorraine Warren. And number one, they're a good physical match for them. Uh, for, a, 
for like the first five minutes that those two were on screen, I'm like, did they just de-age them really well? Or did they just cast lookalikes? Is is there a lot of CGI there? And like if you wanted to give me like an Ed and Lorraine Warren, like their first case, those two, I, I'm hundred percent on board. If you wanted to give me a movie just with Arnie and his struggles and that legal case, I'm hundred percent on board with that. Because I feel like all those performers, Sarah Catherine Hook, Rory O'Connor, uh, the two folks who played the young uh, in Lorraine, I think you've you've had some real talent like involved in this movie. Uh, that's Megan Ashley Brown as young Lorraine and Mitchell Hook as young Ed. And I feel like that we should actually mention their names because they yeah. really they're one of the things that really makes this movie work. Well, they don't get any lines either. That's what's beautiful about that. Their story is Lorraine telling how she met Ed and, and how they fell in love and all this kind of stuff. And it, they don't, they're just acting like without any lines. That, that takes special talent to be able to emote that way with just movement and with scenery. And that's when this movie, when it's in its slow moments and it's kind of being quiet and sweet. Like there's some real heart to it. It's when it tries to scare me in those first two acts that it just friggin' feels cheap. This third act is is creepy enough because of what is going on. The juxtaposition of Arnie levitating in the friggin' prison hospital and the priest, you know, the, the power of Christ compels you all over him, looking like Elias Cotius doing it the whole time, which I don't know who that guy was, but he looked like him. And Ed and Lorraine fighting each other you know i mean that that's the thing is we we've seen them semi-possessed before and now ed is going after lorraine and she finally turns him around and he's able to get control of it and he turns that sledgehammer around and smashes that altar in half and um, that uh, that was a really powerful moment it, it was great yeah that's, that's a moment that really worked for me too and the third act kind of drew me back into the movie where my attention had been wandering slightly in, in the second act and i don't know if that was just where i was or the time of day i, I watched it, it or it, i can promise you it wasn't you because we we made a like a pack my wife and i said okay we're not gonna pick up we're gonna do it like really in a movie theater no phones and mm -hmm. we were both like i really want to pick my phone up right <laughs> in this movie like i really want to flip through twitter or something because i'm not here I, I feel like i don't have to watch this and i can still follow it but when that third act kicks in it's a different ball game and it really it really you know comes to play at that point. Yeah. And I feel like that's one of the problems that the conjuring verse movies have tended to have uh, versus the two mainline films. And now the third one has similar, not necessarily weakness, but uh, kind of a flabbiness. There's a dip in the second act and it starts to get long. And this movie's almost two hours long and you could cut 20 minutes out of it and still get the story done. I think, I mean, it didn't need to be, two hours long. This could be an hour and a half movie and it would be really tight and word. Yeah. And I think it would have, and I, and I think it would have been a better movie had they uh, done that sort of uh, chop down, so to speak. And I understand not wanting to cut out any of Patrick Wilson, Vera Farmiga, but you, know, maybe you cut out and you don't necessarily want to cut out any of uh, Rory O'Connor and uh, Sarah Catherine hook either, because those two, that, that juxtaposition between those two couples where they're similar, where they're different, really kind of helps the movie, kind of gives the movie something with a little teeth that yeah. gets you, carries you through that third act where you get the, uh, the creepy occult occultists showing up.
yeah, you get all of the the meat of it right there at the end and the big exposition dump. And thank goodness that didn't go on too long either. I'll give that they didn't let like the the old priest dottle on forever. I mean, he said what he needed to say, and then he got his throat cut, and that was it for the end of it. And then they got us through it, and they do end it on a on a really interesting button. I mean, yeah, Arnie Johnson is convicted, but he's only goes away for five years and he met her. He's Debbie while he's in prison and they're still married to this day. Uh, and he's come out on the other side of this af- after having a lot of troubles, obviously. And but they don't talk much about uh, David because uh, uh, his family, they, they sued the Warrens <laughs> into the ground as much as they could because they, they did not believe that that was what was going on. But we don't hear much about what happens to him. And I kind of miss that because we haven't talked about him, but the kid Julian Hilliard is really good at being possessed and not like being to like i don't know uh, whatever that kid's name in the original pet cemetery is you know i want to play with you he's not too freaking like that. yeah there we go yeah whoever played gage like we're not doing that at least which i liked in this uh but we get that juxtaposed with ed and lorraine and like you say he builds her a gazebo like what they you know first kissed under because that's what you do when you're rehabbing your cardiac condition you build gazebos in your backyard yeah, probably while chain smoking unfiltered Marlboros. True, true. I, I, Ed strikes me as a lucky strike kind of man. Yeah, so. the moment I said Marlboros, I was like, no, it's lucky strike. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're be, right. He'd be Paul Mall lucky strike kind of man. And Lorraine would have been like those Virginia Slims actions. If oh, 100%. Virginia Slims uh, menthol. Yeah, completely. That is that is Lorraine for sure. <laughs> well, that's completely <laughs> smoking, kids. It's really cool. <laughs> Yeah, I think we just did a we just did a, a PSA we didn't mean to do. <laughs> yeah, uh, what's a reverse P? Oh, an ad. We did an ad for cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, which is um, funny. Which is funny because I've never smoked in my life, <laughs> and I quit long ago. So, thankfully. But yeah, it's it's a very nice, it's a very nice kind of bookend moment, and it kind of. It's kind of not necessarily a happy ending for Ed and Lorraine, but it's just proof that their love can survive even like demonic possession. Yeah, uh, even the satanic panic can't break up Ed and Lorraine. If anything, the satanic panic probably made them very wealthy. True, true. <laughs> or at least, you know, kept them in business. I don't yeah. know if they were necessarily wealthy, but their Connecticut house is pretty nice. I yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, they, 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 weren't, they weren't struggling. <laughs> Let's just say that. Well, Jay, as we put a nice little bookend on the movie with the gazebo, it's time to start considering the gazebo of this podcast. So let's head into our final thoughts, recommendations, and most importantly, our beloved delicious popcorn ratings. So, Jay, what do you got to say about The Conjuring? The devil made me do it. (sighs) I got to be honest with you. The first act felt like two movies I'd seen before <laughs> and then but with a little twist. And then that second act did what all these spinoffs have done. And even what the first two Conjuring movies did to some extent is they just kind of dipped and it felt a little bloated. And I thought, eh, this isn't really, this is kind of boring. This isn't really going to work. I think this is going to fall apart. And then that third act happens and it completely rescues the movie. Like without that third act, th- this movie is, is small popcorn territory on an express elevator to hell but with the third act and again with i'll give four really really 
thumbs up, strong recommendations for our actors, Vera Farmiga, Patrick Wilson, Rory O'Connor, Sarah Catherine Hook again. Their performances here really save it. And they give this movie a lot more heart than it deserves to have. Um, even as a piece of historical fiction, if we could just accept it for that. Um, it's not all that scary. Um, there's some good unnerving moments. It's not nearly as good as the first two. Uh, and I would say it's not as good as even like Annabelle creation, but it's not awful either. So I, I'd give it a medium popcorn and I say, yeah, it's, it's worth a watch. If you're into these movies, if you don't like the Conjuring movies or you've never seen one, this is not the one to come in on uh, by far, but it's okay. So I'll give it a medium popcorn. Yeah, I'll go with you on the medium popcorn. Uh, I'll, I will add some extra butter for me. Like if you had done the Gletzel hunting and made that your whole thing, I, I, I think I would have definitely had a really good time with the movie because I really liked the uh, I really liked that young actor um, Julian Hilliard that you already that you pointed out, and I really liked Rory O'Connor and Sarah Catherine Hook, and I could have seen a movie with those, them dealing with the Warrens leading into the Arnie uh, Johnson murder. And I really liked the third act. The third act uh, did save the movie. The second act, the second act, it wandered a little bit. I don't necessarily want the warrants to be separated. I like them operating together as a pair. I like them working off of each other. And I, and I really like them interacting with these families who are in these terrible situations that the only people who understand them are Ed and Lorraine Warren. So, so in that, uh, I can't give it more than a medium popcorn with maybe a little extra butter. It was still fun. Even like the least of these, the nun, uh, is still a fun movie, uh, but it definitely doesn't meet the heights of one or two to me. Yeah, I agree with you there for sure. So fun, fun, but not, not grand, but it was definitely worth uh, checking out uh, for a, you know, a good Friday night on HBO Max. You can do a lot worse. This is one of those movies, like, if you like this sort of thing, it's the sort of thing you'll probably like. It's not great. The middle the middle section doesn't work, but the opening and the closing are both really strong, particularly the physical performance of the possessed Arnie Johnson, Rory O'Connor, and the possessed David Gladsell, Julian Hilliard. Those two are doing some great contortion, disgusting contortion stuff that really works. And then you get some really good Ed and Lorraine Warren, especially in the third act. So, yeah, medium popcorn. Well, Jay, now that we've given our popcorn ratings, uh, it is now time to kind of close out the show with some plugs. Do you have anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can follow if you're into football, college football in the NFL. It's summertime, so not a lot going down right now, a few trades and stuff. But you can uh, follow the other show I do called The Gridiron Breakdown. Lindsay and Brian from Filmstrip Phantom, along with uh, my uh, longtime collaborator on that, Alan, uh, do a football podcast. It's actually a video cast on Facebook uh, during the football season. So if you go to thegridironbreakdown.com, you find links to our YouTube, Facebook, and the audio podcast. If you want to keep up with that, we'll be kicking that back off in August. And if for some reason you want to follow me on Twitter and read the random stuff I retweet about all the podcasts I like, uh, you can follow me at Jay the Podcaster on Twitter. And I, I, I said it before and I'll say it again, uh, support independent podcasts. Uh, we, we're an independent podcast. We have been for 11 years. We continue to be so. And we have a lot of friends in the independent podcast world we've dropped a few here the, the action drunkies and uh you know atkins undisputed the dana buckler show you know, tis the podcast they're all you know good friends of ours and 
Uh, Ron, you were recently on a really cool episode of Totally Rad Christmas talking about Invasion USA, which you should listen to our review of that on Film Strip. Then go listen to Totally Rad's uh, talk with Ron about that because you get kind of a couple different sides of that movie. But yeah, th- that's the stuff I would plug is uh, support independent podcasts. And if you do nothing more than just signal boost them, it's totally worth it, folks. So uh, I recommend on that. Yeah, 100% support your independent podcasters. Uh, one of the things I talked about in our forthcoming Army of the Dead uh, and I'll talk about here is that got a lot of celebrities breaking into the podcast game and they're stealing the thunder from those of us who have no fame, have no fortune, have no good looks, have no social media team. The people that like us that are doing it all ourselves, the people like Rob, who is putting out great content, the people like Michael Scott from uh, Dana Buckler show and Ed Kizzo Disputed, who's putting out amazing, po- uh, amazing content, both written and podcast form, him and Rob, are both great writers and also both great podcasters. So 100% check them out. If you want to check out a guy who isn't such a good writer, but who does write a lot, you can read my voluminous archives over at denofgeek.com. You've got probably a good 10 years worth of my ramblings on there. Actually, more than 10 years. But uh, yeah, you've got lots of stuff for me on there. Uh, I don't have anything I'm working on at the moment, but in a month or two, the American Horror Story stuff is going to kick back up. And you're going to start seeing me uh, drinking way more coffee and staying up way too late to write things uh, for Dead of Geek. And as always, you can check out the show social media at Filmstrip Pod. Pretty consistent Filmstrip Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. There you can find information about the upcoming shows. Find a link to our letterbox page to have a more manageable experience when it comes to looking through our archives. We've got a link tree that has all that stuff and then some. Then you can follow us on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, please share the show, please. If you like the show, leave us a positive review as it helps other people track us down. If you please like, share, and support us and all your favorite independent podcasters. The amount of people who are doing this for actual real money is a very small group of people, and it is not us, and it is not most of the podcasts we listen to and love. So, yeah, please support independent podcasts. But on that note, uh, we will leave you for the evening. For Jay, I'm Ron. Thank you very much for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.